This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast where Brian Darder and I consider the topics lying on the intersection of energy and finance and any topics, I guess, in a sense that interest us and hopefully uh, interest all of you, our listeners. Um, today, we've got two great guests, uh, Michael Stoppard and Roger Dewan, to talk with us about uh, global oil and global gas and the interconnection of both. But I guess before we get into that, Brian, uh, Peter Frampton has a new autobiography out. Is this the hit that he's been waiting for for the past 40 years? <laughs> Weird. I, I want to know, either you read every single newspaper or watch every single, I, I, you are always a wealth of knowledge of random things, particularly music related. For those of you who don't know, Hill is, knows everything related to the, you know, underbelly of the Houston hip hop 90s circuit. <laughs> you're ever looking for somebody to really round out your trivia team. Um, I did not know any of this about Peter, Peter Frampton, by the way. Uh, interesting little note. So his biography, does he have a lot to talk about? I mean, I guess. It's I've read a little bit of it. It's well, I read the review. It's surprisingly interesting. I mean, the, the, the obvious one, and I imagine that, that any of you can guess what the title, what, what he has chosen to title his new autobiography. <coughs> Any of you? Do you feel like do? His Who is only Peter Frampton? Hit. Who is Peter Frampton? He, he you is don't the, know Peter Frampton. Hold on, I'm he gonna... is the most famous one-hit wonder uh, in the world. And he had this great, uh, you know, I guess double album in 76 or 78 or something. Um, and has been waiting to follow it up with a hit since then and has never realized that hit and apparently in the autobiography his manager or something or his producer uh was in all sorts of debt to the mob no way that's you know uh, this is now that you've said this i'm probably going to read this biography i love reading music <laughs> and all of a sudden this got interesting so, so he, did, he, he, he did baby i love your way which is one of my favorite movies is high fidelity and that song is a very important part of the whole high fidelity movie and book um i'm in you pardon me was that on i'm in you follow-up comes alive oh maybe i have no idea (laughs) all right now now all of a sudden our knowledge has hit its limits on on exactly where this goes i just know of lisa bonet singing baby i love your way in high fidelity um, and it being like an iconic moment in the movie. It's Cameron Crowe movie, right? It is Cameron Crowe, and it's amazing. The book is also oh, good. And then, and then, interestingly enough, so Lisa Bonet sings in High Fidelity, right? She sings that song. She plays the singer. And then in the series that they did, Hulu did a series starring uh, Zoe Kravitz, her daughter, yeah. who was the lead. Um, so plays like John Cusack's role in the Hulu version. And I was extremely worried about this Hulu version series because, I mean, the movie's iconic. 
Um, I actually thought they did a really good job with it. Unfortunately, it got canceled after one season. Yeah. A lot of this has to do with the global LNG and oil market, in case you were wondering. (laughs) (laughs) But before we put Michael on the hot seat, is this going to be the hit that that Peter Frampton's been looking for? Is is this book going to save him from one-hit wonderedness? Brian? Um... No, I think, you know what, sadly, I think there's just so much going on right now that I think this book's going to fly under the radar and it's going to go relatively unnoticed. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, maybe with that, Michael, uh, uh, not, not a one. Well, let me, let me just say yeah. thank you very much for inviting me back for a second Energy Sense, because I thought maybe I was a one-hit wonder myself, you see. <laughs> so no, it's no, always no. great to get a second invitation. Neither of us are in debt to the mob, at least that I know of. So we're doing this, you know, with pure intellectual curiosity. Yeah. Um, well, well, Michael, I, I guess first, so so you have released a, a paper called, called LNG and the Capital Divide that, that gives a, a handful of ideas for reshaping the commercial model of, of the LNG industry. But before we get into some of the details of that, um, you know, this has been, I guess, a, a big couple of weeks for LNG on the back of the uh, ONG announcement. And then obviously with all the attention to oil prices um, and, and Russia's, um, you know, much larger role in, in OPEC or now OPEC plus. And of course, we have Roger uh, on the line as well. Um, so, so, you know, looking at them together, global LNG and gl- or global gas and global oil, you know, how how would you see um Russia's involvement in and strategy in both really shaping, uh, I guess, first gas markets in, in the immediate term and in LNG specifically. Well, thank you. I think Russia, uh, the potential for Russia to make up, uh, to influence the European market has been a perennial of the last 20, 30 years. It's always the biggest uncertainty in any European gas analysis. Um, there's significant overcapacity in the ability <coughs> of Russia to supply uh, the European market. There's plenty of uh, pipeline capacity in place. Uh, of course, uh, much of it transiting the Ukraine and part of it transiting Poland. Um, much of it now going through the Black Sea directly into Turkey and into Europe. Um, and there is, of course, the Nord Stream pipeline going through the Baltic Sea with the Nord Stream. Stream 2 pipeline currently blocked, 94% complete. So there's a big infrastructure in place uh, for Russia to come into the market. And we have seen Russia acting in a partial swing role this year, responding to uh, weakness, weakness in demand and oversupplied markets. So we did see a fall off in Russian volumes into Europe in Q2 and Q3. And indeed, as is, as is quite normal, quite common, beginning to see a big recovery as we move into the winter period and demand begins to pick up. And is Russia, I mean, so, so Roger, Russia has been a, a big force in the, you know, I guess the balancing from OPEC plus. Um, do you see, um, I guess between the two of you, do you see the, the gas affecting Russia's strategy as it pertains to oil? Well, when you look at uh, how people perceive what Russia uh, is doing within OPEC. Everybody talk about oil prices and, you know, uh, uh, micro issues around the, uh, the, uh, the oil market and that Russia is important and plays a big role, etc. But if you know Russia and the importance of energy and the strategic views that they have about energy being oil, gas, 
different markets, Europe, what shale is doing, the, the impact it has on the Middle East, et cetera, et cetera. The OPEC decision is part of that whole strategy, correct? So it's not just about oil market or oil prices. It has to do about the linkage between oil and gas prices. It has to, to do with the price that you believe you need in the oil market to put uh, shale in a certain position in terms of prices and ability to react. That has impact on associated gas. It has an impact, indirect impact on LNG. All of these things are thought, I mean, I can't imagine the Russian delegation thinking about the oil market in Europe and their market share battle with Libya, that that's their motivation, correct? Their motivation is much broader. They are strategic thinker. Uh, uh, thinker. And when you see uh, the Russian delegation, how they work their OPEC strategy and how they signal it, how they work within the countries, uh, it's fairly sophisticated. It, it has a very different feel than the traditional OPEC games where Iran and Saudi Arabia are going after each other. It's like, um, it, it has a level of sophistication for me, which tells me uh, the whole energy strategy is included. Well, because as Michael, I mean, you mentioned there, one of the things that's interesting about Europe is when we look at, for instance, what happened in 2020 and the Russia pipelines um, really got pushed back whereas U.S. LNG volumes continued to flow into the European market. And, you know, even as you look forward, U.S. LNG is expected to continue to ramp up with respect to its share in Europe, et cetera. I mean, that has to be at the forefront of Russia's mind when it's, when it's thinking about what needs to happen as far as a containment strategy within the U.S. Um, shale development, I would guess. Uh, yes, I'm sure that Russia's looking at this in the round, taking in the various considerations, including oil and geopolitics. But there's no doubt that one of the metrics it's very focused on is what is our market share in Europe? And by Europe, they do mean west of uh, of Russian borders. So that includes Turkey. It's not necessarily a European Union calculation. Um, they're interested in their market share there and they're interested in the absolute volume. Um, and yes, they have seen a huge influx of LNG over the last uh, almost two years now coming into Europe and, and taking market share. But let's be clear, the pain, I mean, the question a year and a half ago was very much phrased in who's going to have to uh, curtail supply? Will it be Russia or will it be US LNG? And let's be clear, the result turns out to have been both. I mean, it's been very evenly shared uh, with the cutback of supply. And I expect the United States to be pushed back into a flexible role again next summer. We shouldn't be taken in too much by all the trade press, excited trade press reporting that we see every day about the fact that gas prices are moving up and the market's tight. Yeah, we're in November. If there's going to be an oversupply, it's unlikely to be in November and December. It's going to be felt as we move into the spring and March and April will be again the testing time. What about the trade pro or the, I guess, general press headlines uh, around um, the, the, the Anji uh, uh, impact of, I guess, the, the concerns um, around shale gas, I think it was methane emissions related to yeah. shale gas and the ability for Europe to consume that. And it was something on the order, what was it, 8 BCM or something? It was, it was a, well, I'm sorry, $8, $8 billion uh, 
long-term agreement that, that is now at risk. Is that right? But that would be the size of, uh, I think that's maybe the the, 20, the size of the 20-year contract that was under discussion uh, between, reported to be under discussion between NG um, and the US LNG developer next decade. The US LNG developer next decade reports to be having a number of combinations with a number of customers around the world. The French government, which has a seat on the board of NG, decided to halt for the time being at least signing a contract until the Europeans had a better understanding of the methane emissions involved in LNG development in the United States. So that that's the be- that's the backdrop there hill. I personally see this as part of a much wider phenomenon the European Union the European Commission is pushing forward with something called CBAM do you know what CBM is carbon border okay. adjustment mechanisms carbon border adjustment mechanisms is going to be an important uh, piece of jargon we need to get used to and so we are hoping to move forward to a system in which the carbon content of imported fuels is somehow captured in the price coming into Europe. The French government has short-circuited that whole process and said we don't need to wait for those full procedures to be in place because we are able to influence this particular decision. And now this particular about methane emissions rather than carbon um, but it's all about measuring the greenhouse gas emissions in import in importing LNG into the year into Europe. So, do you think that this is a one-off um, situation, or do you think that this we can expect more of this intervention? I mean, obviously, not every entity has a, a government ownership of it, exactly. so I guess that that's one factor to keep in mind. But um, do you think we can expect more? So I think you're absolutely right that it uh, normally you wouldn't have a government entity being uh, having a say in a commercial decision. So in that sense, it's uh, irregular. Um, but in another sense, there's no doubt there's going to be an increasing trend to examine the GHG content of uh, imports into Europe. Uh, that's only going to grow. And so we're going to hear more of this. The surprise was that the focus has been very much, first of all, on steel on cement and to some extent on chemicals and direct energy commodities coming into Europe uh, were not seen as, as, as front, front and centre in this process, first of all. But they're going to be brought in sooner or later. Uh, the Europeans, we want to know the GHG content of, of, what, of what we're buying. We're not going to be in the business of reducing GHG greenhouse gases at home only to only to import them from outside and so this is potentially while while it's france right now a a bellwether for all of europe for um any sort of shale gas sourced lng yes i mean it's not surprising again perhaps that this has started in started in in france which has a perhaps a higher level of skepticism about shale gas than some other places in europe um doesn't have a deep uh, uh, oil and gas history, although in part of the country in the south it does, but not generally. Um, but I do see other European countries uh, uh, following suit and also having a significant interest in what the GHG content is. 
about LNG. It's not, it's not particularly about the United States. It's about all LNG. It's about pipeline gas and other commodities. From a, from like a foreign policy perspective, I mean, start talking towards things like this. This sounds like it would have huge implications with respect to international relations um, between some countries. It does, but that whole notion of carbon adjustment tax is coming, correct? So it's also in the Biden plan, by the way, to have a carbon adjustment uh, tax for uh, imported goods into the United States. Again, what Michael said is the key issue. Uh, if you have an administration in the United States which is willing to uh, push climate change and uh, attack emission, they're not going to allow to have that loophole that you can import it, correct? So the same idea that uh, we will have in Europe, if you're serious about the climate policy and the reduction of emission, you're going to somehow uh, make sure that you're not importing it and, and, and bypassing it. So it's coming. Uh, I think uh, everybody understands that. Uh, China is understanding that. And when you, when you see a 2060 uh, net zero commitment and the pace at which they're building renewables, batteries, re re reducing coal, etc., has to do with that, correct? So, uh, but at one point, you're going to need to decide how you import cement and steel, etc., which do have a very strong carbon uh, content, uh, and you really need a flame. So you don't have the electricity uh, possibility here. So how do you treat these things? But these debates will happen only in a way uh, in a global forum, and you need the United States engaged into that. And if the United States is not engaged into that, what you're going to see is a lot of uh, a fractioning of the world and delays and probably more use of uh, all these kind of measure unilaterally. Um, so I think Convergence or no convergence really matters because if there is convergence between Europe and the US, you can bring China, you can actually have a constructive dialogue with China within that energy confine. And it's one of the two or three areas where right now we could have a dialogue with China because there's so many others that we cannot, right? On the security issues, on the um, uh, on the uh, 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 data issues, uh, uh, value, trade, etc., there's no solutions. Climate, obviously, pandemic. But I wanted to come back to Russia a little bit. What I find interesting is Russia doesn't have a carbon strategy, really. Uh, and that's important because it also tells you something about their strategy. I mean, they're not going to renewables. They're not doing research on battery. They're not touting themselves to be the lowest carbon uh, uh, footprint or more efficient like Aramco. So their strategy is, at one point, is let's produce as much as we can be before that carbon constraint comes. And that's also part of the strategy you need to think about. And is that, it, that there would seem to be somewhat of a relationship, at least with, you know, at least some of these North America producers, because some of their strategy, I think, has also been pushing that gas. You know, the, the, these independents, that they're not playing the renewables game, right? That they, they are still putting holes in the ground to get oil out or to get gas out. And a lot of that gas market is seen as now on the water, um, potentially coming in to Europe, um, where if, if this legislation or if this, uh, this resistance to shale gas pushes that back, that there, there is a, and there's already the financial problems for those independent producers. Yeah, but I, I think what you're seeing here is when we had the NG uh, 
news, a lot of companies say, well, we capture methane. And the problem is you're putting it with you're putting us with everybody else who doesn't. So some producer and the large producer in particular can't afford that type of uh, methane leakage, especially when they're talking about net zero, etc. Uh, and these leakage is not very expensive to fix. I mean, that's a problem in a way. When you uh, reduce the standards, you allow more competition. You have more smaller companies with lower cost uh, uh, or willing to take that type of an environmental risk. So again, if you have a change in administration, you will have a methane uh, uh, policy and I think it'll be very strong. It'll be perceived as providing job to the service sector, actually go, go plug everything. Uh, and in terms of cost, it's not prohibitive, uh, and the large companies will be pushing for it, correct? I mean, they will be lobbying in town. That's one way that a stimulus package will impact the oil and gas industry. Yeah, Roger, I think it's pretty exciting when you look at how the technology is developing for methane detection. I mean, there are uh, rival companies and indeed the European, the long term European invested Galileo project in competition with a number of private players in the US. And this is a very fast moving area. So not just is it relatively low cost problem to fix, but the NGOs and the environmental organizations have been very clear we don't we it, you need to demonstrate you need to prove that you're fixing the problem and the technology is advancing very quickly so that we can reach that stage quite an exciting opportunity i think and you can calculate it you can see it i mean this is an area where you can show that you're spending x and you're getting y absolutely you can see the environmental damage it's been on the front of newspapers the flaring uh, this is what the politicians in france and elsewhere have been reacting to but these detection technologies i was thinking particularly the satellite technology will also be able to demonstrate the improvement that comes and identify those who are letting the overall side down the bad apples as we say so when we think of uh, you know we've obviously mentioned france and this is something that's very much at the forefront of European policy right now. So policy is definitely something we're watching with respect to the European space. But what about the general state of supply and demand balances? How are things looking for Europe as a whole, um, not ne necessarily just France? We see the European and indeed the wider global market as pretty well well supplied. If you're, if you're talking short term, the next couple of years, um, uh, I continue to see more LNG supply coming into the mix, coming into Europe uh, and competing with Russia, looking to maintain its market share. So we see plenty of competitive pressure in that marketplace uh, to keep um, to keep prices on hook. And we also have this very significant storage build, um, which we were all talking about throughout the summer. Um, and as they say, it's difficult to walk and chew gum at the same time. So we seem to we seem to be talking less about the storage inventory as we like to talk about other things. It's still there. Just to remind everyone, um, European storage levels are somewhat significantly higher than they've been at any other time before. It's certainly above any of the last five years. And the Ukrainian storage system 
uh, is now become part of it has become integrated with the EU system from a market point of view. So we've got a lot of storage sitting there. We've got more LNG coming onto the system. So um, I think the storage should help control prices in the winter period and potentially lead to quite a weak market as we come into spring and summer. I have to say, I think I said this on my last podcast, I have to I say this all the time, depending upon the weather. I mean, the d- weather does make a huge amount of difference, but even But frankly, even if we have a one in 20 cold winter, even if we have a one in 20 cold winter, modelling suggests that storage levels will still be at historically normal levels. So that tells you something about the storage buffer that we have. How about lockdown? Is is any of that? So so today, we're recording this the the, the day before a US election and on the back of a, a weekend where um, that there's been more stringent lockdowns across Europe. Did you, is that going to impact gas markets uh, aggressively in the immediate term? Well, I was looking forward to comparing that with Roger's view on how uh, lockdowns affect oil demand, because I think it might be slightly different. Um, I think the point to remember is, for, from, an, from a gas perspective, that lockdown in November is very, very different from lockdown in May. In Europe, gas demand, because of the heating season, will be about three times higher in December than it will have been in May. Um, And if we're all staying at home heating our houses, and if we're also keeping offices open for um, skeleton staff, um, the utilities are pretty excited that they could have quite, see quite strong uh, gas and power demand this winter. There are lots of trade-offs, but broadly speaking, you can see a possibility that extra heating demand in um, in homes could offset any loss in the service and commercial sector this time go this this way through. So a November lockdown, lockdown looks very different from a May lockdown. How does that compare to oil, Roger? Um, well. So we're seeing uh, first the, the, the lockdowns uh, uh, really impact commuting or commuting. So it was already low. So the lockdowns are start, uh, having an impact in France and, and the UK, but it's a small impact uh, because already the demand was pretty low. In the US, where we have weekly data and we can have a good sense, uh, we haven't seen a big increase in lockdown. But what we've seen is the demand uh, away from normal was about minus 15 percent in in October, and we're closer to minus 17 percent right now. So we can kind of measure there was about a two percentage increase in uh, uh, in the impact on gasoline market. It's small, but the thing is, it's not recovering, and the market is looking at Europe, is looking at the U.S. And uh, starting to understand that uh, second wave, I think it's underestimate. It's uh, the narrative is very much on that. But what we've seen, though, is in Asia, demand has recovered and growing. Uh, so there is a post post COVID uh, uh, potential uh, to think about. But the market is really not focused yet on that. It's really on the negative story for for the moment. Um, but the, the demand is doing well in Asia, and that will compensate. 
Yeah, demand is also very strong for gas and LNG in Asia, and we've seen a, uh, quite a surprising uh, spot prices breaching the oil parity points. So actually, LNG uh, a couple of week ago or so ago was actually trading hands above oil prices, which is quite an irregular situation. So you have a situation in the global gas market where you have uh, quite a weak European market and a very tight Asian market. And if we believe in it, that the market is, in tru- is truly global, that can't last. One of those two has got to pull the other one towards it. Yeah, it's not as positive in, uh, on oil because the Asian market is very well oversupplied, correct? I mean, we have built a huge amount of storage uh, in China, off China, uh, at sea, and the Middle East is, you know, kind of pushing back all its cargoes on the other side. We have significant amount of spare capacity in the system, about 8 million. And Russia really is making a big sacrifice in terms of market share, both on the oil and gas side into this crisis. And that's, I think, it's what, what's also interesting is Russia now is a, is a big global player in restraining supply in, in both markets. Uh, um, in this crisis. So it will want to recover market share. And the question is, will it want to recover market share at lower prices than some of its competitors? Can we talk? So I think that's really interesting. So this market share conversation from both a gas and an oil perspective, that is forefront of the Russian mind right now, right? And where's where's the right price that makes that capturing market share because it all comes down to revenue, right? That doesn't you can have a small market share, but if it's really high price or you know whatever the whatever the sweet spot is. When it comes to oil, where do we think the Russians are kind of happy? Yeah, so the the Russian basically uh, the uh, sterilize all revenue into a sovereign wealth fund when oil is about something like $45. Okay? <laughs> Uh, but they have big budget deficits, so you know they suffer through this crisis uh, on oil and gas. Um, but I would say the price they're trying to get, at which they say there's no reason to uh, really restrict supply in a meaningful way, is what they'll consider the marginal price of shale or something like that. So <laughs> I would say in the $55 brand, uh, Russia doesn't see strong incentive to keep supply uh, shut in. Uh, how it brings it in, how it negotiates with, uh, uh, with Saudi Arabia, how more uh, uh, aggressive is going to be. My point is, because it has 2 million barrels per day, and it's in a strong geopolitical position, they will impose their will, correct? They, and, if, and within the OPEC coalition, other countries will come with them. And in a way, it creates a ceiling to prices until you absorb a lot more spare capacity. And then... Uh, uh, you know, to go to that $65, let's say, you would need to have eaten in most of the spare capacity within within OPEC and certainly of Russia. Uh, then, you know, are they trying to grow their capacity beyond that point? Are they willing to invest and get two, 300,000 barrels per day of growth in their oil supply? And if they do at these prices, uh, you know, then you're taking half of global demand potentially you know, in those years at these prices. So it creates a ceiling. It's a moving ceiling, depending how aggressive they are on their market share. Uh, but it makes a, you know, 65 plus oil prices, uh, even on seasonal basis, difficult to imagine for quite a long time. Anything, Michael, on the on the gas side with respect to, I mean, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but, you know, Russia is not really setting gas price in Europe. Um, 
from you know the same way OPEC's obviously involved with respect to the oil market. So is there is there a price? I, I mean, assuming Russia gas sure. is very cheap, is there a price that? doesn't make sense for them or is it something that doesn't need to be worried about because gas prices are strong enough well i think the first thing to say is that you know the prices that we saw of eight dollars and in asia lng prices of 10 and 12 dollars we've said goodbye to them i'm not saying it won't happen tomorrow but on any kind of sustainable basis because the russians have learned in europe and the qataris in particular have learned in LNG that $10 gas means Australia overtakes me as the world's number one LNG player and the United States comes in and overstates me. So ultimately, you get the same calculation. Both the Qataris and the Russians are asking the same question for gas, as Roger said, for oil. What is the marginal cost of shale gas out of the United States? Because I need to, I can't have an infinite amount of shale gas being exported from the US into the international market. Then it becomes a question whether you price up against that or whether you price below that, but that's the starting point. And that probably leads you to a discussion of whether you think you can manage to get as high as eight or whether you want to go in much more aggressive and come in at six to really try and tackle uh, LNG. So we've talked a little bit about, you know, the the, the countries and some of the, the big players in this. Michael, you know, your, your paper, LNG and, and the Capital Divide, is focused very much around the international oil and gas companies who are another big strategic participant in this, but both having interest in the shale gas, both having interest in um, the, you know, conventional projects and even partners with, with some of these countries. The, the, the model for LNG, uh, your, your paper says that the, the dynamo of LNG supply growth is broken. So, so there's a lot of pressure under here. It seems to be um, some new opportunity for potentially uh, for financial players to get involved in a different way. Um, can you summarize a little bit about the, the, the paper and, and some of these strategies? I think it was five strategies at the end that, that might become more relevant. Sure. Let me start by saying why I said the dynamo is broken. Um, I would argue that most LNG projects over the last 10 years came about with the support of at least one of the international oil and gas companies, or basically the super majors, um, uh, with possible exceptions, particularly out of Russia. Um, but you know, the international oil companies have played a key role, both, and this is the key point, not only in monetizing their own gas reserves in association with national oil companies, but even in buying LNG and offering their balance sheets with a 20-year contract. They've done that uh, around the world, but most forcefully and most notably in the United States, where to develop uh, LNG in the United States, a key factor for success has been to sign a 20-year contract with a super major. Now, the independent oil companies or the super majors are in retrenchment that option is much less available, at least for the time being, and probably for a significant amount of time. So uh, that's why I think the dynamo is broken. Um, now, to move into how do we mend it, the um, idea that really I wanted to flag or float in this, in, in this paper to get people talking is, well, there is a community out there. Um, it's a community that Roger knows particularly well, the financial community, um, thinking pension funds and private equity and sovereign wealth funds in particular, who are potentially open to investments. 
they do probably view this sector with extreme skepticism and they do not like the look of the commodity price risk or the construction completion price risk of the LNG business. But there may be ways by changing the model, disaggregating the model, in which uh, we could see uh, greater penetration of these types of sources of, of finance and capital into the business. So that was the idea of the paper. And is there a, so, you know, for, for years, LNG or gas was the bridge fuel to a cleaner, greener world, right? And finance has in particular pushed pretty hard, uh, most visibly this year, against uh, oil in particular, but uh, and shale, and, and shale, I guess, most definitely. Is, is LNG sitting in a, in a bit of purgatory? Because um, gas is better than coal, but but is it is it good? And can do you, do you sense finance will get involved? You know, be, be after this call, call it a wait and see moment. Well, of course, uh, LNG and gas is half good, isn't it? Um, it from a global global warming perspective, it can help enormously by switching from coal to gas that can halve emissions. But it is still contributing um, greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere. So the question becomes how much, what is the right amount of LNG, but also the timeline. The, you know, most outlooks, most analysis suggests we need more gas uh, in the next 10 to 20 years, but that we need less gas in the next 20 to 30 years to be compliant with Paris. How do you reconcile that with a liquefaction investment which has a 25-year life and a pipeline that has a 40-year life? And so I think what the financial community is increasingly doing is, uh, you know, they're basically shifting from stress testing investments on price to stress testing investments on asset lives. That's the way this is going. When we think, I mean, I think what's interesting is 2020s obviously had a huge amount of uncertainty in it. And through 2020, um, we saw FID decisions get delayed. Um, maybe some cancellations, but in general, a huge number of delays. Yeah, but as we look to 2021, did. I mean, everything you're talking about right now makes me think to myself, well, who wants to take an FID next year either? Are, are we, are we with this uncertainty, is 2021 going to be as slow of an FID year as, as 2020 was potentially? I mean, we can't keep kicking the can. Yeah, I mean, 2020, we haven't really seen a, we haven't seen an FID on a liquefaction plant in 2020. We may just see one small one may creep in before the end of the year. Um, 2021 is not going to be a great year for LNG investment decisions, with one major exception. It does look as if the Qataris will not be derailed from their plans and from their belief in the long-term growth of the market and their determination to be a leader. And I think their determination not to make the mistake of the past, people jump into a gap. Their view is we are the lowest cost uh, LNG player. So if there's going to be some kind of oversupply, that is other people's problems, and they are very aggressively going for market share. Or at least, of course, that's the message. The big discussion is as to what extent they will actually pull the trigger on that. But it's our expectation that we will see a major final, final investment decision coming out of Qatar.
yeah, in I mean, 2021. What do you think, Roger? I think it's very yeah. interesting what we, what we both are saying is we're saying that it's becoming both oil and gas. It's a marginal cost business uh, to invest in this type of return where you don't have a lot of growth. You really need to get good uh, return with low risk. So you need like you know a high single digit, maybe more, but uh, with um, uh, less volatility commodity price. So basically companies need to return above a certain price. And the only investors who are willing to go forward are these national oil companies like Qatar, maybe like Russia, or like Saudi Arabia, Iraq, which have no other option, are low cost, and will have to bring that capacity. Um, it tells me to be able to finance things from the you know, public company or private company in the United States. Uh, the only way you can justify these things with this type of return is one, low interest rate will help you. But two, I think you need to increase the financial sophistication of the instrument you're providing with different type of risk, different type of returns, and be able to find different set of investors, family offices, the public market, the private equity, the pensions, who are looking for different type of risk profiles and return other than what you have right now, it's a big project, correct? So I think that sophistication of the uh, of the energy industry needs to happen. It exists much more, I would say, on the power side, but it's gonna need to, to come into the oil and gas side. All right. I'd say uh, I think this is a, a a good place to leave it and a great place to, to pick it back up uh, on another on another podcast to, to, to be. So, so, you know, again, to remind listeners that, that we are recording this the day before a, a presidential election in the U.S. Um, we, we have carefully not made any predictions on, on what happens to tomorrow or the next day or anything after that. Um, but but I think all of what we're talking about is going to become uh much more of a center of focus, no, no, no matter who's in office uh, next week or the week after that. Uh, so. And I'm pretty sure we'll probably have both Michael and Roger on uh, soon enough once those election results are in, which, Hill, are they going to take weeks to come in as a final election <laughs> result? I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not confident we have an election result come Wednesday morning, but uh, maybe others are more confident than me. Um, now, I just want to say that uh, unlike uh, Peter Frampton, has been, I've been invited many times, I still don't have a hit, so I think you're going to need to start uh, uh, giving <laughs> the baseball numbers for me rather than, uh, you know, like how many times at bat you need to bring him. <laughs> They're all home runs, Roger, every single one of them. You need one of those cool talking guitars like Peter Frampton had, that you just need some sort of novelty. Um, all right. Well, with that, I will hit uh, stop on the record button, and we look forward to talking with you all both again soon. Well, great. Really great to catch up with you guys again. Thanks a lot. That was fun. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.